Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Definitely turn that down because I'm going to blast you all out here soon, just naturally. So, thank you. Uh, just as a piece of information that might be uh, helpful to you, next week during the Sunday School Hour, you may have seen what Dr. Calhoun will be speaking about. It's the story of Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah, Georgia. And the reason why, if you're new to the church, that I asked Dr. Calhoun to speak on this, he wrote the authoritative history on that church. It's a church that's been in the United States for some 250 years. It's the church that gave us quite a bit of seed money to help with our church planter in starting this church. So we have that connection with them. And also, uh, some families that are members of our church now were members there. And then the sanctuary that we're designing is, at least in loose form, uh, designed after their, their particular building. So I uh, thought it'd be interesting for you, the members, to hear of their history. And uh, if you'd like to see more of the pictures of our new sanctuary plans, they're just out in the commons area. So that's the explanation behind our Sunday School lesson next week. Brothers and sisters, we have come to Hebrews chapter 10. Today we'll look at a very lengthy section. It's verses 1 through 18. And you will notice, hopefully, that this is remarkably similar to the verses that we have covered in chapter 9. Now there's many ways you can look at something that repeats itself, but I think the best way is that God's word is wise because it's from God. It is God's revealed will. When he says something over and over again, I think that is an indicator of our propensity to forget it. And so he tells us over and over and over again things that we need to hear, in particular, the truths about Jesus Christ and his complete sufficiency. That's one thing you'll see throughout the scripture, his complete sufficiency, because we tend to lapse into other forms of what we think are sufficiency. Uh, our works, the things we do, the church we belong to, uh, the words we say, uh, our money, you name it, uh, we lapse into other modes of security when in fact it's Christ alone that we have our security. And that's really what we have uh, in this message of the Hebrews, written especially to those who were from the Jewish background that would uh, have this vivid reminder of their sins with the sacrificial code and all that went in it, in, into it. And now Jesus comes and fulfills all that, and there's still this tendency to lapse back into that which is old and ineffective and no longer uh, in place. So looking at verses 1 through 18 will be in some way repetitive, but there are also new uh, aspects uh, to this reality of Christ's sacrifice for us that we will see again this morning. So hear God's holy word, Hebrews 10, the first 18 verses of that chapter. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. 
Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for these uh, truths that you have continued uh, to impress upon us through this book of Hebrews and throughout your revealed will, the Word of God. I pray that we would be a changed people as a result of what we see and hear today. And I ask, Lord, that you would use uh, this body for the furtherance of your gospel, for the transformation of this world. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Very simply and wonderfully, these 18 verses really show a correspondence between the inadequacy of the old sacrificial system and the adequacy of Christ's sacrifice for us. If you look at the outline that I have there for you, you'll notice how wonderfully these verses are structured by this author of Scripture, inspired by the Spirit, of course. The first four verses and the last four verses of this section correspond with one another. The first section being uh, an exposition of the inadequacy of the old sacrificial system and the blood of bulls and goats. And then it ends this section with the last four verses talking about the adequacy of the provisions of the new covenant in Christ's blood. So it's a comparison between the old sacrificial system and the blood of animals and the new covenant in its totality in Christ's blood. And then the middle eight verses relate to one another in that you have the repeated sacrifices being set aside by the one sacrifice of Christ and the Levitical priesthood who offers the sacrifices being set aside by the one priest, Jesus Christ. So again, it's Christ-centered, just like this whole book and like the scriptures themselves, a Christ-centered sermon. And these 18 verses break down wonderfully for us as we see the structure employed here by the author of God's word. So notice now that what we have in these 18 verses, although much has repeated itself, that very simply, brothers and sisters, the forgiveness of our sins that Christ secures by his sacrifice is what actually empowers you to live a life that honors God. Let me break this down very practically for you. I would submit to you that largely what we do is based on our feelings. Now I say to you, and most of us will say in our right mind, you should not make decisions based on feelings, right? But the fact of the matter is oftentimes if you ask someone to do something and they didn't do it and you ask them why, they'll say, I didn't feel like it, if they're honest. It's true, they didn't feel like it. Now, why why did they not feel like it? Well, they weren't thinking right. That caused a not feeling right, and that caused an inactivity or the wrong activity. So my submission to you is as deep and as wonderful as this is, and even as complex as it can be, it's written that it would change our concept or our sense of who we are with God so that our thinking would be right, and it would change then our feelings, because our feelings do matter. And then when our feelings are changed, or our sense of God's presence is changed, we act differently. 
It, you can tell someone that they are your child, but if there's, no, if there's no sense that child has of your parenthood, their security is seriously affected. Just saying you're their parent is not going to give them security. It's the sense they get that they are actually a child of someone that gives them security. It's very similar with our Lord in that he's done these things objectively, provided for us in Christ at the cross. That's really what chapter 9 is talking about. But here it's a reminder that your sins are forgiven and taken away and you have a direct access to God and that should affect how you feel about God, that you can approach him. Now when you have the sense of him being your father who has chosen to remember your sins no more, now you have a motivation for doing what's right. As opposed to before, your motivation may have been guilt-centered. I've got to do this or God will zap me. Or name whatever other motivation you may have for why you do the right thing at times. It doesn't last, does it? When you act out of slavish fear, that never lasts very long. But when you act as a child who is appreciating the parenthood that is over them, total different set of circumstances ensue. So I would submit to you that while what we're covering is deep, deep, doctrinal, it is for the purpose of giving us right thinking so that we have right feeling and then do the right thing. Let's look at how the text breaks this down for us. The first four verses, very clearly and in an introductory way, the inadequacy of the old sacrificial system is what is brought into play, and especially the blood of bulls and goats. Please notice verse 1, for since the law has but has but a shadow of the good things to come. Remember here, the use of the law refers back to what uh, Hebrews has laid out as a particular aspect of the Mosaic law, code, and practice, which was with cere the ceremonial rites, the killing of animals, the whole sacrificial code broken down for us in the Old Testament. That's the particular uh, component that is being referred to when we see, we're talking about the law. That's why I say it's the old sacrificial system. So verse 1 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, which is Christ, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. There is great purpose, we will say once again, great purpose in the sacrificial system given to Moses and the Old Testament church at Sinai. Through that sacrificial system, they were able to experience and see, just like we are in looking back, the seriousness of sin, they, they saw that clearly. There's no way our Old Testament brothers and sisters from the past ever thought their work saved them. Uh, those, those sacrifices just, just reinforced that it was not possible. The continual need to do them. The need for forgiveness of sins was revealed to them by this old sacrificial code. The personal nature of that sin, raising of the animal yourself, giving the animal. The high cost for sin, especially for the one who sacrificed. And most importantly, the need for a savior constantly was always ever before them. And really built into the sacrificial code is a, a wonderful inadequacy, or uh, it's built in that it would become obsolete. That is, after doing it over and over and over again and realizing your sins are never fully taken care of by the system, the idea or the forecast of one who would come to end that system and provide for you that which those things could not do had to be great news. That is the good news for them just like it is for us. They look forward to the fulfillment of that good news of Messiah, the anointed one coming. And really, most importantly, what we learn here is that the actual blood shed from the sacrifices, the actual blood, had no intrinsic power to save or to change anybody. It couldn't change anyone's life like the blood of Jesus still does. Look at verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? In other words, if they were adequate, when they just 
sacrifice and quit? No, they weren't adequate. That's the point. Verse 2, otherwise they would not have ceased to be offered, since the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin. But in these sacrifices, the animal sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. That's valuable. They had a constant reminder, but it didn't actually do anything to save them or sanctify them. There was a lack of intrinsic sanctifying power in the blood that came from the bulls and the goats. Had value because it pointed forward to something, but the bottom line of the old sacrificial system, look at verse 4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Certainly some would lapse into this work-centered idea that by doing the rituals, I'm saved. Maybe you come from that background. I know I did, for I grew up the first uh, 15 years of my life thinking I went through certain rituals and make sure I did a certain thing, and that more or less kept me right with God. I lived in that ceremonial mindset. And you may not have that kind of formalism in your background, but perhaps you have the kind of uh, background that you have a fundamentalistic list of extra-biblical rules that you've got to keep. And as long as you don't do these things, and you do do these things, then you're right with God. So we tend to default back into work-centered righteousness very easily. And so this really does speak to us. You might say, well, I don't sacrifice blood and bulls and goats. But the motive here, the underlying understanding here, is that they believe something other than Christ, something they did, would save them. And that was wrong thinking that needed correction. Jesus brings that right thinking and right corrected way of viewing how they can be right with God And the Hebrews author brings it to our attention again. We need our sin and our guilt removed, and the blood of bulls and goats would not ultimately do this, only that which they pointed to. Look at uh, the second part of this verse with me, starting at verse 5, where we have this uh, reference to the repeated sacrifices and how they've been beautifully set aside by the one sacrifice. Verse 5, consequently, in light of all this, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, But a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. So this wonderful psalm, Psalm number 40, that uh, the the believers of the Old Testament look forward to and through some glass dimly, no doubt, Jesus comes and applies to himself that I'm the one who gives the sacrifice, the one sacrifice. Uh, You have not uh, accepted, God, these other animal sacrifices, at least not for satisfaction for sin. They were important because they were doing what God said to point to the one who would take away their sins, but God was not ultimately uh, satisfied by those sacrifices. He did not gain pleasure from those sacrifices like he did from his son. Now, I want to point out to you for a moment, because I think it's important, and I hear enough misunderstanding about this, what was the experience, do you think, of our Old Testament uh, brothers and sisters in Christ compared to our experience? Have you ever wondered how it was different for them? I've thought about that often. Because there's definite differences laid out in Scripture for how the Spirit ministers in our day as opposed to how the Spirit ministered in those days. And there's all sorts of complexities. But I think one thing we need to be clear on, even though they had the sacrificial system and it was always looking forward, Old Testament brothers and sisters, and I keep saying brothers and sisters so we recognize the unity between us, they actually did experience freedom from the guilt of sin. They did experience the forgiveness of sins. It is not the same as the way we experience it, but it was real. How do I know this? Well, think of what David prays uh, many times, but in Psalm 103. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his child, so the Lord pities those who fear him. The doctrine of adoption is there in the Old Testament. God adopts his people, and he bestows on them fatherly love and care and forgiveness. 
In the Old Testament believers, our forefathers and, and mothers, they, they received and understood this. It just wasn't as complete as, as, as it is for us. And the best way I can explain it to you is this way. I think you all recognize this uh, difference. Recently, I had to replace the tires on my truck. $600 was the bill for changing all four tires. That's my fault, the places I drive and why I pop them, so I'm not blaming anyone. The manufacturer was fine. At any rate, I had to change all four of them, 600 bucks. Well, I have the money, and it's sitting in an account that has a little bit of interest. The guy at the front register told me, I'll tell you what, you can get 90 days same as cash, no interest for that whole time, and we'll give you 10% off. So now I'm down to 540 bucks. I like that idea a lot. And I thought, I've got the money, and it's actually collecting a little bit of interest. So I took the tires, and I signed up, and I'm getting ready to pay as it comes. And I'm thinking to myself, this is great. I got my tires, and I didn't have to pay them anything right now. I have the money, and it's as good as paid for. So I'm enjoying the tires. I'm getting all the benefits out of the tires. It's, I'm experiencing the tires. But in the back of my mind, I'm going to be a lot happier when it's actually paid for, if you follow what I'm saying. The money's there. It's not that I bought it on credit that money I don't have. I have it, but... I can make a little more by not paying it now, and I can enjoy the tires. But boy, I'll feel better when it's paid off. For the Old Testament saint, it's, as good, it's as in the bank. Their salvation would be secured by Messiah. But he was still to come. So there's a vagueness, just a slight vagueness, to how that actually would happen. Whereas the, those of us on the other side of the cross have a much more vivid picture with the Spirit's ministry. And that we actually have the payment for our sins having been made for us. So there's a little bit more comfort, I would say, on this side of the cross. But it's not to say that those on the other side of the cross did not experience, to some degree, the benefits of Christ's work. So it's too simplistic to say there's no connection between their experience and ours. It's too simplistic to say it's identical, because it's not. But I hope this helps us realize that as Jesus claims for himself, Psalm 40, there is a joint experience across the history of those who are redeemed that's brought about by Christ's work. Back to the point of the verse in chapter 10. The inadequacy of the sacrificial system of the blood of bulls and goats is ultimately remedied by one sacrifice. Look at verse 7 and following. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired to take pleasure in sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. He then added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first, that is that sacrificial code, in order to establish the second, himself. And by that, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. General use of sanctified, they're set apart by Christ's work. What are the key words here? And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. By the will and appointment of God, Jesus Christ offers himself as the perfect sacrifice. He puts aside the shadow and he steps into the light of time and space as the real sacrifice and he lays his life down perfectly, sufficiently. This leads us to the third portion of our text. Look at verse 11 where we see now specifically the Levitical priesthood, that institution designed to give the sacrifices, being set aside by the one priest, Jesus Christ. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And notice the stark comparison once more had been brought up uh, already in this book, but it's worth repeating. The stark comparison made between 
uh, how Christ uh, is set up against the Levitical system in how Christ is so far superior. Uh, look what the priest is doing on the human side of the equation, the human priesthood. Two things, standing and standing daily. They're standing all the time. They're standing in the posture of incompletion. That's what standing is. They're never, ever done doing their work. They can't sit down. They're standing because there's more sacrifices to be made. And as soon as one sacrifice is over, another person's in line with another sacrifice. And the same thing day after day after week after month after year after decade after century, they can never sit down. There's a picture of restlessness. When I was in Chicago, I, served, I worked as a doorman uh, part-time down on North Michigan Avenue, and not far from where the Wrigley Building is, if you know Chicago. And there was a, an old building that was a city landmark, just a few buildings away from where I was a doorman, that was really a high-rise with apartments at this point in it. But there was a man there who had worked there for 20 years when I got there. And for 20 years, he did one thing. He stood on the elevator, and it was one of those old-style elevators where there was a lever on it, and he took people to their floor, and it was a 50-story building. It wasn't a short little building. He took people to their apartments every day for 20 years. That's what he did. He sat there with his uniform and his little hat on, and just when you got on, he had a bench he'd sit on sometimes. But even that kind of sitting wasn't really uh, much in the way of rest because he constantly was bringing people to their floor. What floor do you want? What floor do you want? 20 years during the daylight hours. That's monotony. Talk about sameness. And that's the priest standing daily, sacrifice after sacrifice, never, ever ending. But then we have our Lord Jesus in verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, please get this. Uh, you've got centuries of specially appointed individuals, specially appointed, specially trained individuals, doing nothing but constantly giving sacrifices. And how great is Christ that he would come and do away with all of that with one sacrifice himself? What a difference. And it, the difference lies in the complete perfection and sufficiency of the offering given. It's not bulls and goats. It's Christ, God the Son. He offered it once, no need to do so daily anymore. Instead of standing in a constant posture of incompletion, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. What a picture. It's the ultimate picture of rest and satisfaction. God the Father and God the Son seated next to one another. Both are satisfied, not just the Son for his work, but the Father in the work of the Son, and they sit satisfied because the work is done. God never is twiddling his thumbs, worrying about what world events will happen. They're never in any kind of uh, emergency meeting. They're satisfied based on the work of Christ and what that work is doing in the life of the church and will ultimately do in the life of the world. Resting. What a difference between the, high pri the priest of the Old Testament and our great high priest. A return to his pre-incarnate glory, sitting next to his father, and with the added dimension of more glory, because every name, uh, every, the name above all names is given to him, and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So there's a sense in which there's this added glory to the son, who's perfectly done what the father's given him, and he sits down, and it's over. No more sacrifices for sins. I said no more sacrifices for sins. Verse 13, what is he doing there? Waiting for that time until he, his enemies should be made a footstool. Make no mistake, no matter how you take this particularly, the will of God is moving on, and the Father and the Son sit satisfied and are drawing all his people to himself, and he'll receive glory by bringing them all, but not just by bringing them all, but by the justice that will be poured out on his enemies as well on that great and final day. Verse 14, 
For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Please see verse 14 closely with me. Two major, major concepts are there revealed. He has perfected for all time by the offering of Christ on the cross. Those who are being sanctified. This is the one case or one of the few cases where the New American Standard gets it wrong. They use it in a, in a, in a past sense, have been sanctified. It is properly translated as a present active verb, meaning are being sanctified. Sanctified that is set apart and continually being sanctified. So there's two concepts in verse 14. Please don't lose this. Justification and sanctification. Justification, the one-time act of God's declaring you righteous because of the work of Christ. Sanctification, his setting you apart at justification and then constantly making you more and more like him. Even when it hurts. Justification and sanctification, there in verse 14, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What is the basis for sanctification and justification? The offering of Christ on the cross, his obedience, his active obedience, his passive obedience, once imputed to you in the point of justification, but now being lived out in a sanctifying way. Let's look closely at this again and think about it. Uh, if you uh, are familiar with the Westminster Shorter Catechism's answers, they're very, very good in giving us a correct understanding of justification and sanctification. First of all, justification is an act of God's free grace, wherein he pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in his sight, only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. That's the act of God's free grace. What is sanctification? Sanctification is the work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. Do you see it? Justification is a one-time act. Sanctification follows justification throughout your life as he moves you more and more to the image of God. Notice 14 again. By a single offering, he's perfected who? Who is he perfected? How do we know who is justified? Those who are being sanctified. Assurance comes best when God starts to change the way you act. We can say we trust Christ and then live a life that is totally, totally antithetical to that confession. You will never have assurance. You might really be saved and God may be convicting you, but you will never have assurance of your salvation. Because assurance is best experienced when we're obeying because obedience can only come from the holy spirit's work in your life to change you that is being sanctified that's how that's the best way i can describe to you how you know that you're justified now please don't misunderstand me i don't mean that you stop sinning and i don't mean that you don't stop struggling in fact the struggle itself brothers and sisters is a good indication that god's working and sanctifying you and this is the beauty of fatherly love and watch care for us is that he doesn't let us be at peace when we're in sin. And he wrestles us and he makes us restless and we wrestle with him and he moves in us until we see it according to his will. And then remarkably and peacefully when we align ourselves with his will, things are just much better. And when we think right, we'll start feeling right. And when we feel right about the truth, then we start acting right. A single offering has perfected for all time who? Those who are being sanctified. We'll come back to this application in a moment, but look at the final four, ver four verses where we see finally the adequacy of the provision now of the new covenant in Christ's blood compared to the old covenant in the blood of bulls and goats, now the new covenant in Christ's blood, verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for after saying, 
This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. This is a quote from Jeremiah 31, looking forward to Christ's coming. I will put my laws in their hearts and write them on their minds. And he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. This beautiful new covenant living, now that we have the completed word of God, Jesus has sent the Spirit to bring to remembrance those things that he told the disciples. He, they are penned in the scriptures. And we have this constant uh, interaction with the Spirit of God in our hearts, testifying to what God has said and changing you. That's the blessed uh, walk of sanctification, of spiritual maturity that happens for the believer now, this side of the cross, and after the giving of the Holy Spirit in a special way. I'd like to draw for you just a few points of application that I hope would start changing your sense of how God views you. Uh, remembering that the forgiveness of our sins uh, that Christ secures in his sacrifice is what empowers us to live lives that honor God. So, what effect does Christ's sacrifice have on you, the Christian? I say, first of all, that Christ's sacrifice confers upon us direct fellowship with God now. We don't have intermediaries that we need. We have direct fellowship with our Father. And literally, like I tell a little child, you can talk to God any time. I tell you that you can talk with your Father any time. He never pushes you off. He never turns you away. He never brings up things that have been done in the past. He looks at his Son and he accepts you. And you have direct access to him now as a result of what Christ has done. Verse 18, where there is the forgiveness of these, that is, it's the state of forgiveness, there is no longer any offering for sin. I think we have to understand something here. Saying sorry is not enough. That's not what has granted you eternal life. It's the action of God to forgive you. Because you wouldn't have asked sorry had he not forgiven you and given you life. So saying sorry is just trite and it's relatively cheap. It's the giving of forgiveness to you and placing you in this position. That's, uh, there's a big difference. One writer has said it wonderfully. We trample the blood of the Son of God if we think we are forgiven because we say sorry for our sins. The only explanation for the forgiveness of God and for the unfathomable depth of his forgetting is the death of Jesus Christ. Our repentance is merely the outcome of our personal realization of the atonement which he has worked out for us. Listen to what else this author says. It does not matter who or what we are. There is absolute reinstatement into God by the death of Jesus Christ and by no other way. Not because Jesus Christ pleads, but because he died. It is not earned, but realized. Total different feeling you ought to have about your relationship with God because it's utterly clear because of Christ. Secondly, Christ's sacrifice grants us now a cleansed, guilt-free conscience so we might glorify God. Not only can we stand directly in the presence of God and Christ, but we don't have to be burdened and heavy laden with guilt. And guilt and, and shame is what brings about more sin. And, and giving that to Christ, uh, giving it over to him, will open you up to obey him because you recognize how powerful the blood of Christ is. You might remember back in chapter 9, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So you're purified and conscious. You don't stand before God in guilt. Now you can serve. And you all know what this is like. If you're guilty or shameful in the presence of another person, you, just, you don't even like to hang around with them because you feel bad. It brings back to your mind what you've done wrong to them. And serving them, you don't even want to look at them, let alone serve them. Well, often we have that feeling around God. We don't accept what Christ has done in its totality, in its sufficiency, and we stand before God like this. And you can't serve like this. But when you stand in the righteousness of Christ, now you can live your life in reaction to his acceptance of you in Christ. Massive difference in motivation. 
there are so many ways I could probably get you, my brothers and sisters, to shape up. I could bring my Bible and bash you on the head with it and tell you all the do's and don'ts, the rights and wrongs you should be committing. And you know what? You're going you're gonna to do well for about 10 days. Then after 10 days, you will crash harder than you were before because your motivation will be out of guilt, fear, and slavish, slavish terror as opposed to my just telling you, brothers and sisters, you've been bought with a price. You are adopted sons and daughters. Your identity is not yours anymore. You, your life is hidden in Christ. And just telling you that ought to give you a whole different sense about why you do what you do. That's the doctrines of grace applied. Christ's sacrifice grants us cleansed, guilt-free conscience so that we might glorify him. Verse 17, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Please notice very distinctly what is said. It does not say God will forgive and forget your sins. That's a human construct. Forgiving and forgetting is not of God. He has not forgotten any of your sins. But better yet, he has chosen not to remember them. And he has given your sins to his son. That's where he remembered them. And he poured out his punishment on his son, remembering your sins. And then has chosen in light of the cross to remember them no more. That's the gospel, by the way. He chooses to remember them no more. And he can do this in his justice because the son pays for it with a sacrifice. I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Martin Luther has all sorts of interesting things he says. And it challenges my theology often. And I don't know, always know what to make of what Martin has written. I'll ask him in heaven someday. But he wrote something that is very interesting. And I can't say that it didn't happen to him. He was certainly a much more important figure than I will ever be. And so it's possible Satan came to him personally. But listen to what Martin Luther says. In a dream, Luther found himself being attacked by Satan. The devil unrolled a long scroll containing a list of Luther's sins and held it before him. On reaching the end of the scroll, Luther asked the devil... Is that all? No came the reply, and a second scroll was thrust in front of him. Then after a second came a third, but now the devil had no more. Luther said, you're forgetting something. I know there's more, he said triumphantly. Quickly, write on each of them. The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses me from all these sins. Christ's sacrifice grants us cleansed, guilt-free consciences that we might serve God. And finally, I'd say to you, Christ's sacrifice then provides for the inner working of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer so that we might glorify him. Verse 14, single offering has perfected us, uh, perfected for all time, those who are being sanctified. Then down in verse 15, and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Please don't uh, mistake me for saying that the Holy Spirit just magically gives you thoughts. No, the means of the Holy Spirit is to use the word of God, which is revealed, in conjunction with your spirit. The Holy Spirit uses that then to change you. But it's based on his revealed will. He doesn't speak to you other than that which he has revealed in his will. That's why when you are tempted in some sin, uh, what will come to mind and what will assist you the most in those moments is what God has revealed to be true in his word. Why do I not uh, steal? Because I know that thou shall not steal. And my identity is with my father, who's united me to himself by his son. I can't act like that. And so the spirit reminds me of my adoption, and I realize who I am, and then I think of his law, and I say, I can't do that. Or if I do do that, I'm, I'm miserable because of it, because I'm not acting like my father. I'm supposed to reflect. 
And the Spirit has a mysterious ministry. I can't claim to quantify it, but it is, uh, is wrong to say it's not there. The Spirit of God testifies to my spirit that God's truth is true. It changes me as a result of it. and doesn't let me off the hook. Convicts me when I need to be convicted. Encourages me when I need to be encouraged. Reminds me I'm adopted when I need to be reminded. Like a hug from your Father, so the Holy Spirit gives us this overwhelming sense of our belonging to God in Christ. Forgiveness is ours, brothers and sisters, and it fuels our lives. A Sunday school teacher it concluded her lesson and wanted to make sure that she had made her point, so she said to her class, can anyone tell me what you must do before you can obtain forgiveness of sin? There was a short pause, and you know this isn't just an anecdote, because if you taught Sunday school, you've heard these kinds of things. And a little voice piped up and said, what do I have to do to obtain forgiveness of sins? I have to sin. That's the truth. God grants us salvation because of the work of Christ, not because we said we're sorry. We say we're sorry because we recognize what we've done because God's opened our eyes to it. It's not conditional in that sense. John Newton understood this and recognized the change in his life. It was dramatic. He said, I am not what I might be. I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I wish to be. I am not what I hope to be. But I thank God I am not what I once was. And can say with the great apostle, by the grace of God, I am what I am. The effect of Christ's sacrifice on your life is nothing short of changing everything about how you feel, which will have a profound impact on what you do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for giving us your son. Lord Jesus, for being willing to go to the cross for sinners, for perfecting us, and to continue the ministry of sanctification and Holy Spirit by your work of sanctification in us. Lord, I pray that we would check our feelings, that they might be right and according to what is true, not according to what the, the world says or what we just dream up, but based on the truth, and that through that we would then live differently. And why, Lord? Why live differently, Lord? For your glory. That's what we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. In the early service, the brethren limped severely through the last hymn. So, I warn you, this is a little newer. It's, it's an old hymn many of you probably heard.